0: IT businesses in From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast. With a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT.
1: With your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome everybody to episode 175 of the Killing It Podcast. I'm Carl, joined today by Dave and Ryan, and we are having a great summer getting ready to go to ChannelCon.
0: We'll be at ChannelCon for the next time we record. How about that? But for this week, mm-hmm. gents, if you could have a song play every time you enter a room, what would it be?
1: I have to say, Nye did not know when she put this question in. Dave actually has a song that plays every time he enters a room.
0: Well, So I mean, it, so the funny thing is, is, I have a song that used to play when I went on stage. Like that was so, and, it, and I will tell my little version of the story. This so, so the uh, when I was initially picking, I wanted to use ACDC's "Thunderstruck," but I was told by my team that that is too cliche, <laughs> and they are not wrong. <laughs> they are not wrong, and so I moved on to Fort Minor's "Remember the Name," which is a Lincoln Park offshoot. For those who know that. Uh, And I did that for a long period of time. And I will say with a smile, when I had a new boss who said to me, you know, we're going to redo all of the intro music because we want it to all be in the same corporate alignment. I knew it was done. I knew I was like (laughs) the the back end of working in that job. (laughs) Yeah, It's got a
2: different personality for a reason. And, And see... Uh, for those who don't know, Dave and I have been talking about the nuances of walk-up music for more than a decade. So uh, this is something that as children watching baseball on television, you wished you could pick your walk-up song. And then when you get to go on stage a bunch, you you actually do it. So you think very carefully about it. See, I would go, depending on the crowd, there's two, right? Depending on whether or not it's a family friendly crowd or whether or not I can say what I want to say, right? Because if it's uh, if it's I Gotta Be Public Friendly, then it would be the song What's Your Plan for Tomorrow by The Interrupters. And uh-huh. if it's if it's a place where we can say what we need to say, then it's Without Me by Eminem.
1: <laughs> well, the first time I was ever asked this was by Dave uh, many years ago. Like, what do you want your song to be when you come on stage? And I literally had no answer, and I do not even remember what they played. So... I always think about my favorite song. My favorite song for more than four decades has been "San Antonio Rose," which is not a great walk-on song. It's just a great song. So, uh, once again, two That's weeks true. in a row, I had no answer for you.
0: I will. Then I'll give a bonus answer on this one. I believe so. I've not done any live events at this point since of you know this is a while, uh, and I don't have any necessarily any plans to do this time of stuff. But I will say that if I do it again. I'm going to play the theme song to my own podcast not because at this point I will play the theme song <laughs> to my podcast because that is the the music that comes on when I introduce the beginning of the, the daily.
1: And, and podcast. and nobody knows it past. by any other name except, Oh, it must be Dave's podcast. Dave's podcast. Exactly. <laughs> and so. now
2: Dave, and now Dave full circle. You have become that corporate brand
0: guy. There
1: you go. Oh, that's not very nice. Life
2: is circular. Wow, that that
0: (laughs) one strikes deep into the heart. That is a super level. Nothing worse you could have said. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know about stir shaken? If you're doing voice for your customers, you had better. The deadline was June 30th. This technology is focused on reducing robocalls, and providers have to take action. Are you compliant? The team at OIT VoIP has put together resources for you to learn more. Or, for their customers, it's already handled. Want to learn more? Visit oit.co/mspradio for resources to help make sure you're covered.
2: Excellent. And now let's dive into our first topic. So uh, to lead us off today, guys, what I want to do is to revisit a timely topic focused on all things supply chain. Uh, if you guys will flash back with us a couple of years to the beginning of the disruption and the pandemic, we had a lengthy conversation about, so what will this mean and what will the impact be and what will what will actually change in our industry as a result of the pandemic? And way back then, Carl made a very keen point to say it's all about the supply chain and whether or not it can be trusted and can be consistent to fulfill yours and your customers needs, right? So uh, we we made that statement a couple of years ago. And fast forward to today, we see stories about, you know, countless cars and trucks parked in lots that don't have chips and can't ship to customers. We talk to solution providers who can't get network security gear because it's either stuck on a boat someplace or there aren't enough chips for it, etc. All across the board, it seems like supply chain is still a massive, red, painful light for us in the industry. So the questions that we want to get to, and we're going to point to a bunch of resources in the show notes, talking about you know some of the things that are affecting the tech side of the auto industry, what some of the big thinkers in supply chain dynamics and modernization are talking about, and maybe even some thoughts about how we can change as solution providers to adapt to this new world of, No, there is no on-time unlimited supply anymore, so what are you going to do about it? So my question to you guys is, what are we going to do about the supply chain?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the players that uh, should step up and hasn't so far is distributors. That It is possible for distributors to put together a collection of products and say, You know, if you want to build something with a reliable, flexible supply chain, these manufacturers are better than those manufacturers and help a solution providers put together collections of products, because this is this is less uh, of a problem with services, but it's clearly a problem with products, you know, like either because. They just are in the right country or they have the right systems or whatever, or they've figured out a way around the problems with transportation. And, you know, we live in a complicated time. Uh, But that would be something that distributors could do and and literally just market. Hey, we're the distributor that's going to help you make sure you don't suffer more than you should from supply chain issues that neither, neither one of us has any control over.
0: Is panic an option? Yeah, we can just do that. Well,
1: that's what we've done so far.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, so this is so I'm going to throw out a different idea, almost intentionally to change the thinking versus because Carl's not wrong, right? There's there's a whole bunch of ways we could do this, but but I've actually been wondering a lot about how much things might change in our buying habits. The main reason I've been thinking about this is is cars in particular. Um, Often, there's been a very instant gratification style of buying that goes along with uh, buying a car, right? That oftentimes you would, you, you go to the lot, you select from this large selection of cars that are available right then at the dealership, and Tesla changed that. Tesla changed that into an ordering process where you would order a car and a few weeks later the car would arrive. (laughs) And most people in the Tesla ecosystem were fine. Were ultimately fine with that. I'm also looking at you, Apple, and saying, like, so Apple has established very much time that, I mean, yes, you can oftentimes walk into the store and buy a Mac, but for most, you order it, configure it, and it is shipped to you at a later date. You do not necessarily get it instantaneously. You'll wait two to six to eight to 12 weeks for the particular unit that you've bought. And I've been thinking a lot about this this change in buying habits because in both cases, you do actually get to order exactly what you want to your specifications, yet you've traded off instant gratification. And how much more Will willingness will buyers have for that if it is presented as a feature. If this is the new buying mechanism, you do get exactly what you want, but you don't necessarily get it right this second, particularly for big ticket items. This does make more sense in some technology buys. And I've been thinking saying like, well, is that the actual answer is the actual answer to supply chain to put less pressure on it for instant, immediate delivery and instead be more, you know, careful and, and deliberate about our ordering windows. See, and I'm going to go to a place that combines both
2: of your ideas, because this is something that we have spent a lot of time thinking about in the channel. Uh, I'm a solution provider who resells technology solutions made by the very best vendors in the world, the latest, the greatest, every advanced feature. And I go to my customers and I say to them, you should buy from me because dot, 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 that guy over there made something new and better and I can be the one who sells it to you. I think we are entering a new phase that requires a fundamental shift of value proposition down the value chain another rung. it is no longer did the vendor invent something new and release a version of that product that compels a customer to buy it's not just to your point Carl the stuff you want to buy is instantaneously available through distribution at the drop of a hat and you can just snap your fingers and all the equipment shows up it comes to the solution provider layer to say did you actually design a bespoke solution for your customer that is, de- that is going to custom create the outcome they're trying to get to, but is not dependent on a product roadmap from a manufacturer? In other words, you can't just outsource your value proposition to the manufacturer. You have to add value on top of that stuff through design, through configuration, and through all of that stuff. Now, That's not the first time it's happened in our industry. We've done this before. And what we know happens in this phase is that those who can design complex solutions on top of standard equipment make a ton of money when they are the ones who are adding the branded value. So, yes, it's going to be harder because I will tell you, forecast wise. We're not going to get to a place of instant-on, instant-available, all-the-time supply chain ever again, the way that we used to be comfortable in this industry. So you got to go to your customers and sell them something different, not the latest and greatest. It's about the value you add.
1: So we're going to sort of transition this into the next topic, but I will say there have always been cars— that you had to wait for because they were high end luxury cars. So that piece of the market sort of got democratized, I guess, if you want to say that by Tesla. But it's also the case that even in our industry, I never sold off the shelf machines. I built I, you know, I sold HP, but I had them specially configured. You got to wait. Nothing shows up the next day. So um, the interesting thing is our next topic is the build to boost semiconductor production. Um, and so cars are a piece of that. I mean, I do have to say, if you are listening to this call and you are in North America, your car is probably worth $5,000 more than it was a year ago, <laughs> your used car. Um, and, it, and I've had more than one conversation with people who are like, oh, maybe it's time for me to just sell my car and drive a piece of junk for a year and then, <laughs> then go buy it back again. Um, but this bill, is not a short-term solution. It will do absolutely nothing in the short term, but in the long term, it will help us have a better supply chain with semiconductors, or at least that's the promise. I think in the short term, it's gonna be the give a bunch of money to Intel and AMD uh, program. Um, But I think there's a different way to look at all of this, and that is, do you really and honestly need a toaster with a chip? Do you need a coffee cup with a chip? Do you need a dishwasher? And, you know, my daughter complains that her garage door opener, she can't turn off the notification that her garage is opening and closing. Like, (laughs) well, you could uninstall that app uh, or get a different garage door opener. Um, There is something about kind of socially. Is it responsible to continue to insist on products that pointlessly connect to the Internet and need chips? Or should you, you know, forego that dishwasher and let the rest of us get a new car?
0: Well, I'll put, I'll say that I wish it was that simple <laughs> because there, because, because, I mean, there are many, even if you, if you remove the connected to the internet component most modern technologies have more chips in them simply to function because of the way that we design products now. They are much they have digital displays or they have um, you know touch panels. There are, there, are way, there are modern conveniences that we expect from devices that make them more complicated and more electronic. Additionally, they then have, you know, even if again, not even connected to the internet, they have ways of, of providing diagnostics or, or advanced internal pieces. Yeah. But, but I would I, ask,
1: does that actually improve your life or improve, improve the universe or help things spin in the right direction?
0: Well, it, it, sure, but uh, you know, I don't. We're, we're not old men shaking our fists at the cloud here. Like, like I want to want to observe that there's we have made UI deci- decisions about you know, or, or interface decisions or or convenience decisions about these things. What what I actually am cons- more concerned about is is the I'm generally not uh, I'm not necessarily sure that the the solution was to pour, is to give money to Intel and AMD. Uh, that said, I would like to make sure that we're incentivizing companies the way we want them to. Particularly when I think about this as a national security issue, uh, you know, we we have evidence that chips, you know, made abroad may may be may be problematic for for the U.S. And so there is reason to incentivize companies to build in the United States. And that is, as I always say, that's what government is for, right? Is to put the rules of the road out to make the competitive landscape work. And so you, you want to motivate them and incentivize them to remain onshore rather than offshore that. But I don't necessarily, but, but, but it's a fine line between, you know, dumping a bunch of money into companies that don't necessarily need that. Because if I find out in a year or two from now that their investments are around stock buybacks, that's going to be a whole other conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and the
2: track record isn't necessarily spotless in that regard. So there is a reason for approaching this cautiously. Uh, As Carl said, I think it's brilliant that we are stepping up to put our money where our mouth is and reinvest in chip fabs on shore. I think that's a great idea. The execution is going to make a big difference as to whether or not that actually expands our supply or just enriches the people who provide the limited supply. But it brings me back to a deeper question of it's kind of where you're going, Carl. Um, the question is not do we have enough chips? The question is are you building products that leverage technology in a way that actually makes our lives better? Uh, The old rule of engineering and design is that constraints force creativity. If you have an unlimited supply of chips and you just toss them in there willy-nilly and a light blinks in the UI, but it doesn't actually do anything meaningful, then as a designer, you're lazy and you just did it for marketing purposes. But if you don't have an unlimited supply, if you are required to own, if, if it says, hey, look, your car can now have 50 fewer transistors or chips in it than it previously did, prioritize, right? Be a better engineer, design a product that will hit the high points of functionality that your customers actually care about and eliminate the fluff. I think that's the new domain that we're going to be entering, as I said previously, that brings it closer to the customer. It's not just about manufacture new things because you can and then go out there and hope that you can find an audience to sell them to. Step number one becomes, what would you as my customer actually pay extra to accomplish? And then it's my job to go out and use my limited finite resources to build a a solution that actually meets your needs within my constraints. And whoever's a better designer actually wins in the new world that means customer intimacy that means local implementation that means that the layer of the dealer and the solution provider becomes more important than the anonymous manufacturer back at the factory i personally think that's a really good thing and most of the chips that you're waiting for in your cars that are parked in lots all around north america we're pointless. Well,
1: and I will add another player to the mix, and that is Amazon. When Amazon, you know, they have a category, like, oh, I want whatever, frustration-free packing, I want greener packing, I want greener delivery. Well, when you check the box it says, I want a, uh, a low chip manufacturing process <laughs> or whatever they call it, they'll come up with a name for it and it'll sound really cool. And you will be a good person if you check that box. Uh, magically those lower chip options will suddenly become available uh and i you know i know this sounds silly but i'm serious that you know it is wasteful as human beings to put stuff into these things where they don't improve the product or our experience if they do that's great we're all nerds we all love technology but it's not always great just because it's there
2: And and I'm the first nerd on this podcast to say I look forward to an Internet-connected smart device world of the Internet of Things. Just don't be flagrant and and frivolous about it. Design things that actually make the world better. Don't just connect it to the Internet because you can.
1: Oh, come on. It's half the, f- half the fun is just connecting things because you can. I I, I, <laughs> I recycled a UPS uh, yesterday and I was literally thinking, I wonder if that motherboard has any chips that will help, you know, lower the window on a car or something useful like that. <laughs> well, I'm going to pivot us into our third topic of the day, and this one
0: caught my eye on The Verge, and the title is Tech Journalism's Accessibility Problem." Let me sum it up by the beginning as it talks about the Apple and its touch bar. For anyone that was familiar, it's the thin little strip that replaced the function keys at the top of the MacBook Pros. Uh, it was not well liked by most of tech journalism with uh, with phrases like hopefully sleek, confused, baffling, dreaded, aggravating, and infinitely worse than a hard button. Wow. However, <laughs> as The as the Verge points out, there was one accessibly minded writer, Stephen and he's disabled and he finds laptop diff- keyboards difficult to use. And the touch bar allows him to access in one tap features that would otherwise require multiple taps. And it was packing a bunch of functionality in for disabled people in a small screen that was incredibly relevant. Now, what was interesting about this article was is about the world of journalism covering technology through this perspective, and how few dedicated beat writers there are to covering this, the uh, difficulty of understanding the problem if you are, don't have, have those life experiences, as well as even necessarily respecting the, those problems. And and I wanted to sort of throw throw this out, first off, as an interesting view. Many of us don't look at this from a services perspective either, right? We're probably also rolling out services without necessarily necessarily always taking that into account gents you know when, when we're looking at this our, our it services world what what do we want to take away from this thinking of hey what about accessibility in terms of even just reviewing the tech
1: well i would note that there are actually laws about accessibility of your website and i can't remember the number but it's ridiculous like 98 percent of websites are not compliant um So this is something that uh, as soon as the fines start coming down, people will start paying attention to it. But you can be uh, a little bit ahead of the curve by looking at your website and just running it through some tools. And we have some some tools that were listed in the show notes that, um, you know, how accessible is your site? Because the other thing is, if the people who have accessibility issues, whether it's on the web or with a tool that you download or whatever a software that you sell, um, that entire market will go to the people who have tools that allow them to be productive, right? And you are writing off a good chunk of potential business if you don't pay attention to this in what you sell and, you know, include those people in your, your potential customer base.
2: And I will point to uh, uh, another one of our fundamental rules of the way human brains work. What gets measured gets produced, right? If it becomes popular and people talk about it, then it becomes a market and you fulfill the need in the marketplace. That also works in reverse, right? If the tech journalist world comes out and says, this feature is bad, I don't like it, and that becomes the overwhelming storyline dot, 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 that feature is going to go away, as it has with the touch bar on the MacBook Pros. Now, I believe that this is a question of fundamental professionalism, curiosity, and actual quality in terms of journalism, right? Uh, Full disclosure. I thought the touch bar was brilliant. I loved it and I used it extensively because it was very context-sensitive. Depending on which app you were in, the most common features were instantly and graphically available for you and you didn't have to have already memorized some arcane set of you know, DOS keyboard commands to be able to access the functions of your modern software. Kind of a brilliant idea, right? But everybody said they hated it, and now the new machines don't have it anymore. And when it went away, I was like, duh. I actually thought that was an advancement. Now, I would call this phenomenon almost – I'll refer to this as the Nickelback phenomenon. Uh, If you you realize out here in modern society, uh, the band Nickelback, whether or not you like them, you know that everybody has decided that it's really popular – To crap all over Nickelback and say that they were terrible and embarrassing and horrible. Now, um, A, is that really what you think? Or is that just what you heard somebody else say and you're just parroting a popular opinion? Or B, is it based on your actual personal experience and you formed some sort of original thought? Uh, I will say something equally controversial to liking the touch bar. Nickelback doesn't suck musicianship-wise, they're actually very, very talented, and whether or not their music is your bag of tea, they've made a whole lot more records and money from those records than any of us have. So I would say they're actually pretty good professional musicians, but it became popular. I think that the tech press has a laziness problem where they hear somebody out there go, hey, this new feature is terrible, and then everybody else goes, I think it's terrible, too without actually having done their homework. And as you're saying, Carl, if that has negative impact on the availability of accessible technology, that's not just lazy. That's doing active harm to society. So do your homework. Form your own
0: opinion. What I was also drawn to, and by the way, I happen to think, a bunch of Nickelback is really good, so I'm gonna <laughs> go out there with that controversial <laughs> opinion. Uh, but but movie, but but what also interested me about this was was the requirement not necessarily to dump all of the reporting of accessibility on the small number of writers with you know accessibility uh, you know issues and and who who are you know having those is is and it makes it it does make it a complex problem. I want to acknowledge the fact that this is a realm where you also have to then create beats that will be serviced by people who aren't necessarily served by the beat in the same way. And that that requires building specialization and it is these more... Uh, I don't want to use the word niche but but where it is not broadly required there it's a hard problem to do and and in a in a realm of journalism where there are less and less resources necessarily potentially in, in particularly large newsrooms or newspapers or those kinds of areas. I want to acknowledge it's hard what I want us to take away is the lessons of some of these issues are really hard and particularly as you're thinking about underserved communities or, improperly served communities knowing there is opportunity to be found there. It's not necessarily just going to be easy, but I like hard problems. I've always liked hard problems. There's
1: money there. If you can figure out the solution. To and I, a couple things I would note. First of all, there's a lot of accessibility built into modern computers that nobody knows about or uses. So, you know, there's there's kind of a, a community of people with certain disabilities that are very aware of this, and they spread the word and they train each other. But a lot of the stuff that's out there, you know, most of us have accidentally held our, you know, finger on a key too long and had something from Microsoft pop up and say, "Do you want to turn this on?" I'm like, uh, no, I didn't even know it existed. Why would I want to turn it on, right? Uh, so, so that's one thing: is be educated about the stuff that you're already selling that might have these edu- uh, uh, ability features built in. Uh, the second thing I I point out is that. Um, There's a lot of times when stuff gets changed in computers and technology generally um, as a fad because it's the latest and greatest way that we build web pages. So we're going to have this gray on gray with off white with gray text. It was like, okay, that's completely unreadable. Even if you don't have a disability, if you just happen to wear glasses, it can be a pain in the neck and then you go onto a mobile device and it is much higher definition. Well, you know, that's the kind of thing where you need to fix your stuff. And it's not just websites. Software is built this way. Lots of hard programs that we get into or download, uh, online services. So sometimes those fads have to be resisted because the marketing department will make a decision about something that can actually be detrimental to the ability of your users (laughs) to use your product because it looks really cool with the latest marketing fad. Well,
2: and... And if you guys think about it, right, in the physical world, we have the reality of accessibility requirements going up stairs and ramps for those who need an alternative access to a physical facility. The more that we move our lives into the digital world, we have to design a digital world that is also accessible. It's not okay to design it and go, well, you can't read that text. Well, you know what? That's your problem. And it's not my problem. No. In exactly the same way that it's every real estate developer's problem that the buildings are accessible, all of that digital real estate needs to think that way as well. And I would predict we're about to get some regulation in that front to put some teeth into that
1: stuff. You had to end on a downer. All right. Sadly, that will do it for episode (laughs) 175 of the Killing Killing It podcast.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.